Now, uh, I appreciate you coming out tonight, and I, I don't say that lightly. I realise it's a Sunday evening, you've already been to a meeting, I hope you've been to a meeting already this morning, <laughs> and, uh, and so I appreciate you making the effort to come out uh, here tonight. We are going to look at a subject which uh, is perhaps one of the hottest potatoes in the body of Christ, uh, and uh, the subject of Israel and the church. I was actually asked to speak on Israel, but I asked if I could speak on Israel and the church, because I want to kind of uh, uh, flow one into the other, really, in a way. And uh, I have noticed, because I have been asked on a number of occasions to speak on this subject, that there is a tendency for elders, when they get to the subject of Israel, to invite in an outside speaker, while they themselves duck for cover. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's good to, uh, good to be here and to be able to share with you, and I'll certainly try and uh, leave some uh, good time at the end for us to, uh, uh, to have a bit of conversation and some, some questions and, and come back. Now, my first concern in talking about this subject, to be honest, is a bit of a personal concern, and this is, uh, I'm really going to plead with you to be gentle with me, especially as uh, uh, I'm going to open this up for, for questions later. As you can see, see, I'm of a nervous disposition, and uh, when it comes to this particular subject, uh, uh, it can, in certain contexts, I'm not saying here in Winchester at all, but it can, in certain contexts, uh, become somewhat emotional. So I'm asking that you all treat me gently uh, on this subject, because too often a lot more heat is generated about this than there is light. Uh, and as I say, it can all get very emotional. Uh, I have found myself uh, really personally uncomfortable at what might be called both extremes of the debates with regard to Israel. Uh, and I've kind of been in context where I have experienced both extremes. Uh, I have certainly been in context where I have been faced with what I would call an ex extreme pro-Israel uh, position uh, and found that because I don't actually subscribe to exactly the position that the person confronting me subscribes to, that the thing can get very, very tense indeed. I was literally in a situation a number of years ago uh, with somebody who was in our church in Brighton. They are no longer in our church in Brighton, uh, but they were at that time. And I honestly thought this lady was going to hit me. Uh, it, it Genuinely. I mean, she was so angry with me. I thought she was going to hit me. On the other hand, uh, I think sometimes almost because there's a reaction to a very, very strong pro-Israel position, you can get extreme attitudes, I think, the other way and find that sometimes there are those that sort of react so strongly to a kind of pro-Israel lobby that they become almost dismissive with regard to Israel. And uh, you get people talking about Israel fanatics. Well... I don't think I've ever heard anybody refer to a China fanatic um, because, you know, somebody has been passionate about China and wanting to evangelize China and really wanted to bring China onto the agenda or, let's say, India or anywhere else. But you don't hear of China fanatics or India fanatics. Uh, but you do get sometimes this rather dismissive attitude which uh, tends to say, oh, they're just Israel fanatics. And so I think at both ends of the uh, debates, uh, there can be a lot of raw emotion. And that's not really the best way through 
on this subject. Now, one of the most emotive phrases that comes up today with regard to the subject of Israel is the phrase replacement theology. And a number of you may have heard that particular term being used. And it is a term that is quite often used with regard to new frontiers because it's quite often uh, speculated that new frontiers as a family of hundreds of churches and I suppose now thousands of leaders that there is a kind of a set position on the subject of Israel and uh, that New Frontiers is actually a movement of churches that teaches replacement theology. And that's, I've come across that quite a lot. Uh, I, I was told by a local pastor only a couple of weeks ago that he had a membership course uh, running, and uh, at the end of the course there was a bit of time for questions, and it was just the last question, and the lady put up a hand and she said, could you just in one minute tell me what New Frontiers believes about Israel, because I know you teach replacement theology. Uh, and that kind of uh, remark does come up quite often. Now, the reality is that replacement theology is actually quite difficult to define, because it, in fact, means different things to different people. But stripping it down to its bare essential, I think you have to say that replacement theology is basically suggesting the church replaces Israel. But having said that, you then have to ask, yes, but in what sense? Because all sorts of possible answers... Uh, can then come out. I found in experience that the phrase replacement theology tends to be used by those who are very pro-Israel uh, and it's used against those who hold a different view to them but there are a variety of views that are held on the subject of Israel, which all can be labelled as replacement theology, if actually you hold a very pro-Israel position and think that only your position is the one that is right and acceptable. I think probably, in essence, the debate about replacement theology is between those who see every promise given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament as still totally and uniquely relevant to Israel. And there are those who would say that uh, there are actually promises that are given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, some of which, at least, will actually have a fulfilment in the church. And so, having been accused of replacement theology there are many who would say, actually, what we believe is fulfilment theology. That there has been a promise that has been given to Israel in the Old Testament, and indeed, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, may actually have seen some fulfilment of the promises that were given to them, but the ultimate fulfilment of that promise or those promises is actually to be found in the church. And so, 
I think in this whole subject of replacement theology that there is this debate that uh, is there consciously or unconsciously between those who actually want to say, if you teach anything that is different to what I believe about Israel, you're teaching replacement theology. But others who are saying, no, we do believe that there are promises given to the nation of Israel, and actually Israel may, may have seen some of the fulfillment of those promises as a nation, but we would believe that actually these promises are ultimately fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a, that's a general statement, and there are details that we, we need to look at, and which we will do so as we go on. Also, and I'm still really here in introduction, we need to mention the subject of hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics is not the, the name of a German engineering company, but it's, it's a, actually a reference to a very, very important subject today, which is about the interpretation of Scripture. Now, I studied for four years in Spurgeon's College many decades back now, and uh, I don't despise my roots, and I'm not knocking the training I got in Spurgeon's College in any way, but I know, going back to something over 40 years now, that in Spurgeon's College, there for four years, taking a theology degree, the word hermeneutics was never once used during my whole college course. Whereas now... Today, it will be reckoned that actually hermeneutics is the most important subject in the whole realm of biblical studies and theology. You see, you can say that you believe the Bible cover to cover and the maps as well, and it can sound very spiritual in making such a claim, but the reality is to say that you believe the Bible cover to cover is actually not sufficient. Because there are people that claim to believe the Bible absolutely cover to cover who are actually total heretics. And the Jehovah's Witnesses would fall into that category. The reality is you also need to interpret the Bible in order to bring out its meaning. It's not sufficient simply to say, I believe it cover to cover. You've actually got to interpret the scriptures in order to elucidate the meaning of them. Now, I mean, there literally would be a million and one ways you could illustrate this, but let me give you one which is fairly stark in order to make the point. If you've got your Bibles, you might like just to go to Revelation 13 and verse 1, and we read there, And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Now, this is speaking about the beast, or more commonly, we probably use the term Antichrist, which is used as a term in the, the, the first letter of John. But this is speaking about the arrival and the rising up of the beast or the Antichrist. Now, if you took that verse and said, I believe the Bible literally cover to cover, you actually would find yourself in some difficulty. Because if you say, well, I, the, the beast literally comes out of the sea, the Antichrist comes out of the sea, are we speaking about the Antichrist arriving on Brighton Beach, for example? Now, if you know Brighton, you might think that's possible. But, I mean, is, is that what we're speaking about? Well, I don't think anybody would take that sort of view. 
And so you have to interpret this. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Now, fortunately, because we have the Old Testament scriptures behind us, it's not too difficult to interpret it. In the Old Testament, the sea is often uh, a symbol of turmoil and division and uh, uh, tumult amongst the nations. And what is probably being taught here is that the Antichrist actually arises out of a situation of confusion and tumult uh, amongst the nations. It also says here that he had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. I mean, are we going to see at any time in history uh, an antichrist who literally fits that description? I would suggest that actually nobody really is. But as we look at this particular description of the beast in the context of Romans chapter 12 and 13, we see that that description that is given of the Antichrist or the beast is exactly the same as the way that the book of Revelation describes the dragon or the devil. And so what we're actually seeing here is that the Antichrist or the beast is really like an incarnation of Satan. He's representing Satan on the earth. He's doing his work on the earth. Now, I'm not getting into a whole lot of end times teaching here. I'm just saying that you've got an illustration here that it's not enough simply to say, I believe the Bible cover to cover. You've got to bring some interpretation to it in order to get some understanding of the meaning. Now, the key issue, or a key issue, not necessarily the key issue, but a key issue of hermeneutics is that the Old Testament has to be understood in the light of the New Testament. And so it's sometimes put in a bit of doggerel that the New, referring to the New Testament, is in the Old contained, but the Old is in the New explained. And so in the Old Testament we have a, a great deal of revelation and a great deal which is laid out for us embryonically which actually we only come to a full understanding of by having the New Testament, which explains to us what is contained in the Old Testament more fully. Uh, There is, in fact, a verse in Hebrews, right at the beginning of Hebrews, that in a sense indicates that to us. Uh, Right at the beginning of Hebrews, the writer says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So you get that sense of Old Testament revelation, that God spoke to his people through the prophets. But in these last days, speaking of the the age that comes with the coming of the person of Jesus Christ, in these last days, he has spoken to us in a final way through his son. And it is the son, Jesus Christ, who is able to make clear and bring out in fullness the message that was embryonically there in what was spoken by God through the Old Testament prophets. And very often the theologians will tend to speak of this in terms of progressive revelation. That as we go through the word of God, more and more light dawns on us, more and more clarity comes, 
And we find, as we get into the New Testament, that there is a sense of progress in the revelation that comes to us, because what is there in the Old Testament, sometimes in symbols, sometimes figuratively, sometimes a bit mysteriously, becomes clearer and clearer through explanation given in the New Testament. Again, let me just not leave that theoretical, let me give you a very precise example. In the Old Testament... Everybody who dies goes to Sheol. That's the, the Hebrew. In, uh, in Greek, it's Hades. But everybody who dies goes to Sheol. Now, the Old Testament is then very vague. Certainly, what the Old Testament knows and reveals to us is that you survive death. There is a consciousness after death. That in Sheol, there is consciousness after death. But it doesn't give us much more. There are sometimes just one or two hints that for some, Sheol might be a a bad experience, and for others, it might be a more glorious experience. But that's hinted at in places like Daniel and Job, uh, but you don't really get any more on that. So we have it laid down in the Old Testament. When we die, all of us will still retain a consciousness in what the Old Testament says is Sheol. We've got certain limits on the revelation. It's only when we come into the New Testament that we get some progress in the revelation. And indeed, we see in the New Testament that, as the Old Testament says, that when we die, there is indeed consciousness still that remains. And uh, uh, there is this uh, ongoing sense that we continue to exist. But the New Testament begins to work out the details of heaven and hell for us. And so we begin to understand much more fully and completely what was embryonically expressed, but not fully expressed in the Old Testament. And so there is a sense of progress in the Revelation. So on many issues, and this includes the issue of Israel, and this is really why I've laboured this a bit, you cannot simply stay in the Old Testament And really, can I lay that down as a foundational principle? Because I think that is the problem for some people, that they stay only in the Old Testament. You do need the revelation of the New Testament. Now, I am not saying we ignore the Old Testament. I really am not saying that, that actually we kind of close the Old Testament off and simply look at the New Testament and ignore the Old Testament. But we need to actually interpret the Old Testament in the light of the fuller revelation that we have in the New Testament. And the New Testament does speak of Israel. And therefore, we are able to make progress in our revelation and understanding of the teaching that there is on the subject of Israel. And finally, there will be no contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament because God's truth will always hold together. Now, let me just divert for a moment to make, uh, or to just remind you of the political uh, status, if I could put it like that, of the Middle East at the present time. Uh, We all know that the, the Middle East continues to be in a state of turmoil. Nothing new about that. We are aware of ongoing troubles in Iraq, and uh, I suppose today, uh, particularly as Remembrance Sunday, 
many people's thoughts were turned to those that have lost their lives in recent years, both in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And uh, uh, I can remember many years ago when I was a Baptist pastor, beginning to think, you know, surely Remembrance Day is one day just going to die out. It's going to lose its point. But you sense these days there's much more point to it again. Uh, as uh, uh, people are remembering uh, conflicts in which we have our own soldiers who are being injured and dying. But also caught up into the maelstrom of events, maelstrom of events in the Middle East, is Palestine and Israel. And uh, you are probably very well aware uh, that Iran is very much on, in the picture now with regard to Palestine uh, and Israel and often issues threats with regard to Israel. Uh, we know that there has been an intifada, so-called, uh, in existence uh, now for a whole number of years, uh, uh, something of a Palestinian uprising uh, in, in that part of the world. There have been terrorist incidents that have meant that uh, Israelis have been killed in bomb outrages, and then usually very swift vengeance taken by Israel, uh, upon Palestinian uh, people who have actually uh, attacked them. All this has resulted, of course, in more recent years in a huge wall being built, uh, which has somewhat separated um, uh, it, uh, the uh, territories in which Palestinians uh, live from uh, where the Jews are living. And uh, it's interesting how hardly a day goes by without some mention of something happening in Israel. Only, if you, only yesterday, if you picked it up, um, that Ariel Sharon, who led Israel for a number of years, but has actually uh, been in a condition of a coma and now for four years with a stroke, he was actually moved back home yesterday um, because there's no hope in terms of ever bringing him round. But... Uh, uh, the, the point was made that somehow he's still a shadow over Israeli and Palestinian events. So uh, what goes on in the Middle East is constantly in our media, and we're very aware of it, and it's bound to influence our views of Israel. Now, over the years, because I have so often uh, been asked questions, and I suppose because I teach a lot about eschatology or the end times, so inevitably the subject of Israel tends to get raised a great deal, I've had to try to think the issue through uh, and come to uh, some conclusions uh, which square, I hope, with the word of God. And I, I personally believe that one way of looking at this subject is to make it clear that there is a spectrum of views on Israel which are held by evangelical Christians, and I stress evangelical Christians, but there is a spectrum of views held by evangelical Christians. And I can detect five main points on this spectrum. And what I'm going to do in the next few minutes is actually to go through uh, these five particular points. Now, other people might analyse it differently. Uh, they might see it uh, uh, expressed in certain other ways. But I think that to show you the spectrum across five views will actually serve us and does genuinely reflect what I have observed in the evangelical world, not just New Frontiers, but in the evangelical world over the years. Just before I jump directly into that, I must, however, say that the key scripture 
which uh, is behind every one of these views in terms of the need to interpret it is Romans 11, 25 and 26. And this is absolutely key in terms of where you are likely to be on that spectrum. So let me just read these verses to you and not make any particular comment on them at this precise moment, but just read them to you. Uh, Romans 11, 25, 26. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And really, those verses govern so much thinking on the subject of Israel. Okay, so now let me begin to go through the spectrum of views. And I'm going to begin with uh, uh, the, the end of the spectrum, which one might say is least pro-Israel. Okay, so I'm going to begin at the, the least pro-Israel end. At this moment, I'm only going to tell you what the views are. I am not going to critique them. So as I give these views, you might say, hey, just a minute, just a minute, we don't believe that. Uh, no, just, just, if you just hang on, please, I'll come back and critique them. I'm simply at this moment going to tell you what the, the five views are. So let's begin with the first of the, these five views, which I would detect in the spectrum at the least pro-Israel end, and it's this, that Israel ha- holds no special place today in the purposes of God. Right? Israel holds no special place today in the purposes of God. And so the nation of Israel, the Jewish people today do not carry any particular promises from God that are relevant for them either now or in the future. Now, it's important because strong feelings are felt about Israel that immediately I say that this is not anti-Semitism. Some people even come out with that kind of comments and say, oh, people who hold this view, they're kind of anti-Semitic, they're they're against Israel. This is an evangelical viewpoint, and all evangelicals who hold this viewpoint at this far end of the spectrum will at the same time also say, certainly Jews need to be evangelised. They're not saying that we don't take the gospel to the Jews, They're not saying Jews don't need to be saved. They're not saying Jews don't need to to be preached to. They they would immediately say the gospel does need to be presented to the Jews. But it needs to be presented to the Jews and to Israel in just the same way as the gospel may be presented to any nation or to any people. So we believe that the gospel ought to go to Russians. Um, amazingly, we even believe the gospel ought to go to the French, but we believe it, you know. And, uh, and uh, the gospel needs also to go uh, to Israel and to the Jews. But, having said that, there is no special place for uh, the Jewish people in the purposes of God, no promises from God that are relevant in any particular way for them today or in the future. So that brings us immediately to Romans 11, 25 and 26. What about the statement then that all Israel will be saved? Well, all those that hold this view will tend to say, well, you must understand that now 
The church is the Israel of God. That's God's people. The church. The church is the Israel of God. And all Israel will be saved is an assurance that the full number of God's people will come in to make up the church, Jew and Gentile, and be saved. Probably, in purest terms, this is replacement theology. So that probably, um, in purest terms, is replacement theology, but it isn't anti-Semitism. And it is not denying that the gospel needs to go to Jewish people. But in practice, the phrase replacement theology gets used a lot more widely than for this view. So, the second viewpoint, and that is that God has an end-time purpose for the nation of Israel. That we can definitely say that, but that we can't really say more than that. And that usually the idea that God has an end-time purpose for the nation of Israel is brought into the whole realm of eschatology with the, the viewpoint that in some way there will be a mighty or substantial turning of Jews to Christ as Messiah before the end with the return of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of debate centres around the actual expression all Israel, and I, I've read all sorts of uh, comments upon this. I think that it is, it is fair to say that on the whole, the view is that the expression all Israel was a typical and common rabbinic expression for the nation as a whole in general terms, but not for every individual Jew. Now, we do have some parallels with that in our own language and in the way that we speak. If I go down the the local high street on cup final day, I might observe to my wife, you know, gosh, everybody's at home watching the cup final on television. Now, plainly, that is not the case that everybody is at home watching the cup final on television because there are still crowds of people around. But you're aware that it's much quieter than normal. So you're making a general statement, you know, everybody's at home watching the cup final. It's a general statement. It doesn't mean literally everybody individually is there. And so when we read of all Israel will be saved, those who hold this view will tend to say, well, it refers to a significant and substantial turning of Jewish people to Christ as Messiah before the end. In that sense, all Israel will be saved. The way that happens is actually argued two slightly different ways from Romans 9, 10 and 11. Some, and you can get this according to what verses you particularly emphasize in Romans 9, 10 and 11, some would suggest an accelerating conversion of Jewish people as we get towards the end. Others would speak more of a deathbed conversion you know, even to the extent that Christ appears at his return and Israel or substantial number of Jews say that is our Messiah and actually confess him um, right at the last moment. So it's a kind of deathbed conversion. So this view is that there is going to be a major turning of Jews to Christ as Messiah, um, but it is not saying more than that. Go to the third view, which has to do with the land of Israel. Now, In this view, 
all Israel will be saved and the, the viewpoints would be the same as the, the previous viewpoint that there will be an end time purpose for Israel. Can you just bring the next one line up please? But also added to that that Jews will return to the land of Israel as it's often referred to today. So at this point the land of Israel becomes highly significant. Now, I'd really ask you to listen very carefully to these next few sentences because I really don't want to be misunderstood here. This viewpoint is not making a political issue about the land of Israel. It is not saying anything about the state of Israel. It is simply saying that Jews will go back to the land. However, it becomes a political issue because there are those, and Hamas amongst the Palestinians will be at the forefront of this, and is supported by Iran, who will deny that Israel has any right to the land. And so it then becomes a political issue. But I need to pull you back even further than this because this is often not realised This is a complex issue, but the political issue is actually driven by a religious issue. You see, at one time, the land that is commonly called Israel today, or Palestine, the land was actually Islamic. It was actually controlled by Islam. And Islam is territorial. And so where Islam conquers then literally that geographical piece of land is seen as Allah's land forever. That is how Islamic thinking goes. And so, if land is ever lost, it must be regained, because it is actually Allah's land. And therefore, many Jews are implacably opposed to Israel being in the land. Would you just for a moment, I know this is difficult uh, in the light of the fact that we're Christian believers here, if you just can try and do this for a moment, just separate yourself from uh, uh, wanting to think about this from a biblical perspective and simply ask the question, if you like, in general or even political terms, why are the Arab nations so het up about the land of Israel? It is, after all, a tiny bit of land. It's about the size of Wales. You know, it's a, it's a tiny bit of land. And uh, you may not be aware of this unless you've been, been to Israel, but it's not only the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, which actually are under Palestinian control. Many parts of what we would call Israel, many of the cities there are also under Palestinian control. Right, so Jericho, for example, is under Palestinian control. It is not under Jewish control. And so you've got this tiny bit of land, the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and on the West Bank, but also Palestinians actually having control of various bits of what you might think are actually Israel, but are actually, in fact, under Palestinian control. So why do the Arab nations get so het up about this little bit of land. 
the Arab nations that surround this little bit of land are themselves vast. So why not just leave little Israel alone? The answer is because it belongs to Allah. And that is the basic issue. And that's what drives so much hostility to Israel in terms of the land. Now, that's not to come at it biblically. That is actually just a state where the religious convictions of Islam come behind the political pressures. I want to go on to the fourth point in the spectrum, which I will call Zionism. Now, uh, Zionism theologically can be expressed in terms of classical Zionism and, and progressive Zionism, but what I'm trying to do here is actually to reflect what I find tends to be held as positions amongst uh, evangelical Christians, different positions. And I'm using Zionism uh, for this particular uh, point. Uh, it, is a, it is a term that is used anyway. God has an end time purpose for uh, the Jewish people. Israel will return to her land, but also that there are Old Testament promises for the prosperity and success of Israel, which are not revoked and must be fulfilled in the nation of Israel, even in the present age. Now, an example of this would be Isaiah chapter 62. And in Isaiah chapter 62, just hear this now as being relevant only to Israel as a nation. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory and you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And so those who hold, hold a Zionist position will tend to take uh, statements like that in the prophecies of Isaiah and say this will be fulfilled for the nation of Israel and for the city of Jerusalem even at, uh, in, in our age and in our time and that we should be looking for that to happen because these are God's promises for Israel and they have never been revoked. What then tends to happen is that this leads to uh, Zionism in the sense of an exaltation, really, of the state of Israel. That Israel is to see the fulfilment of all these Old Testament prophecies for her as a nation... <laughs> nationally and, and geographically. And uh, you do get opposition when you talk on the subject. <laughs> nationally and geogra geographically. And therefore, it is important, particularly for Christians, to support the policies and the government of Israel. You also add to that that the nation of Israel is God's nation. That... The Jews are God's chosen people. And so, at this time, Israel is to be fully supported at a political level in order that the promises given by God in the Old Testament may actually be fulfilled for her nationally and geographically. And some would even add to that, not to support Israel in that way, would mean that actually as Christian believers we could forfeit the blessing of God for ourselves. Now, there is actually one more point on this spectrum 
and that is dispensationalism, which um, uh, brings us to the, the other end of the, the spectrum. And dispensationalism really states that God's real agenda is the nation of Israel. That right now we are in an age of grace. Uh, this is the church age, and the gospel is going to the Gentiles. But actually, it's, it's just a, an in-between age, and God wants to get back to his real agenda. It was there in the Old Testament with the Jewish people, with the nation of Israel, and finally, God will resurrect his real agenda. And all the promises that have ever been made to Israel will ultimately be fulfilled in the millennium. And with this comes the belief that Jesus will reign on the earth for a thousand years, and during that thousand years, the nation of Israel uh, will be the dominant people upon the earth. And alongside that, you get also talk about uh, rebuilding of the temple and the offering again of sacrifices in the temple, not because uh, they can achieve anything, but in remembrance of Old Testament sacrifices and so on. And so you're going to get uh, uh, a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and it will be a very Jewish time, if I can put it like that. Israel will be the, the dominant nation. What you believe about what happens to the church at that time depends on whether uh, uh, you're a classical or a progressive dispensationalist, but I won't get into that detail. It gets a bit refined. Now, uh, this, uh, this represents, I believe, accurately a spectrum of belief that is held by evangelical Christians. Evangelical Christians would hold these views, but it's a spectrum of belief. But it is a spectrum, and so I'm not suggesting that every evangelical Christian actually alights 100% directly on one of those views. Uh, for example, you can believe uh, that the Jews will return to the land but you could also be dropping down a bit towards Zionism without getting the whole way there. Right? So it is a spectrum, um, but I think it, 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 those five points do represent key points upon that spectrum. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road. The family of churches to which we belong, New Frontiers. I travel widely and have done for a number of years, like John, uh, amongst our churches. I teach a lot on, the es on eschatology, on end times. The subject of Israel often comes up. My observation in our churches is this, that people on the whole do not hold view one or view five in our churches. But in our churches, they do hold views two, three, and four. And believe me, there's enough difference of opinion there to create quite an emotional feel about the subject of Israel. I'm not saying that nobody in our churches believes view one. I'm not saying that nobody in our churches view, believes view five. But I am saying that the viewpoint held in our churches clusters around uh, views two, three, and four. And I say there's enough difference of opinion there to bring challenges to our churches. It also reveals the fact that you can't blandly say this is the New Frontier's position because actually people hold different positions uh, on the subject in our churches. Now, although view one is probably only really accurately replacement theology, those who hold view four 
will tend also to lay it on views two and three and say you're teaching replacement theology. Although I would say that strictly speaking, you could only really, in a purest sense, apply it to view one. Right, we're going to keep that up and I'm going to critique those five views. Are you with me so far? All right, I haven't got clarity on that. Now, I'm going to critique these five views. Okay, so, uh, first of all, the view that uh, Israel holds no special place today, particularly bearing in mind that Romans 11, 25, 26, all Israel will be saved, that that is a reference to the church. Now, I would want to say that I don't think that's a, a tenable position. What Paul does in Romans is argue for eight chapters the doctrine of salvation in a magnificent way. It is the greatest apostolic demonstration uh, of the gospel in terms of writing down what really is essential to gospel truth and gospel preaching. And Paul does that for uh, eight chapters, Romans 1 to 8. Because during those chapters, Paul obviously has to deal with the issue of law, which, is, which has always been precious to Israel, it does raise the question, what then about the nation of Israel? And Paul actually takes not one chapter, let alone two verses, he actually takes three chap- chapters to answer that. And Romans 9, 10 and 11 are dealing with the subject of what about Israel in the light of this gospel that you have explained to us. Now, through Romans 9, 10 and 11, the word Israel is used many times. And I would suggest always and unambiguously the term Israel refers to the Jewish nation. So, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ... I am not lying, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Now, there's no way you can read Israel there without seeing it as the Jewish people. That would just make no sense at all. If you go down to uh, verse 30, 31 of the same Chapter, what shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but contrast here, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Now what is clearly happening here is that believing Jews, sorry, believing Gentiles and Jews are being compared here. Gentiles who receive righteousness through faith, but Israel who does not receive righteousness through trying to pursue the law. There's no way that you can understand Israel here without it being the Jewish nation. It just wouldn't make any sense. Or if you go to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Brother, my heart's, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Again, it's evidence and it's indisputable that Israelites must refer to the Jewish people. So, when you come to uh, the word Israel again in chapter 11 and verse 26, and Paul, as I say, taking three chapters to talk about this subject, When Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved, 
I think that you commit hermeneutical suicide if you suddenly say that with every other reference to Israel as the, the Jewish people, suddenly in verse 26, Israel no longer refers to the Jewish people, it refers to the church. Uh, and uh, personally, I don't think you can do that because I think it, it, it almost smacks of Alice in Wonderland that you start to make words mean just what you want them to mean. There is surely a consistency here uh, in the use of the term Israel. So uh, I could not stand with you, one, um, that Israel holds no special uh, place today when actually we do seem to be reading in verses 25 and 26 that all Israel will be saved. Now that immediately jumps me into the second view, which is about an end-time purpose for the nation of Israel. Let me read it to you again, verse 25 and 26. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, years ago when I began to attempt a bit of teaching on this subject, I tended to take those two verses exclusively in, and in isolation and I would make the point about the consistency of the term Israel and I would say these two verses make it clear that there's going to be an end time purpose for Israel, that there's going to be a substantial turning of Jews to Christ as Messiah. What I overlooked and I think is often overlooked is that this is not simply two verses that are isolated, but it is actually a culmination of an argument that Paul has been working through chapters 9, 10, and into chapter 11. And so in chapter 9, he talks of the electing purposes of God with regard to the nation of Israel. In chapter 10, he's talking about the fact that Israel has actually uh, stumbled, but not fallen, uh, and uh, uh, there's definitely a sense there that God has something for Israel. They've stumbled, but they haven't fallen. But in this stumbling, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. And in chapter 11, he's then saying, what about the Jews then? And he really comes to a climax and conclusion in his argument when he says in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. I've heard it suggested that this is not an eschatological event, that it is uh, referring simply to the fact that Jews get saved across history, which of course they do. But I think then you're struggling with what it says in verse 25, the verse before, that Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. There does seem to be the suggestion there that there is a gathering in from the Gentile nations that does precede something that is going to happen amongst the Jewish people and amongst the nation of Israel. Again, let me say that we're not saying that all Israel refers to every individual Jew. We are saying that there is a substantial turning of the nation to Christ as Messiah. Then we come to view three which is that Israel returns to the land. Now, at this point, it probably begins to touch areas which are most sensitive. Uh, that Jews have returned to the land is a fact. But why? Have they returned to the land because of promises and prophecy? Or have they returned to the land because of luck 
and uh, certain political and military manoeuvring. Now, I'm going to declare my hand here, and let me say, again, there's a spectrum of views that are held by evangelicals. There's, a, there's different views held within New Frontiers, but I'm going to be honest with you that my own view is actually shaped by the fact that I believe that on this issue it has to do with covenant. Now, hold with me here, because there are a couple of important things I need to say about this. Indisputably, God made a covenant initially with Abraham, but through him to the Jewish people, that they would receive the land. So, nobody would dispute this. Uh, Genesis 17 and verse 8. And God says, in the context of the covenant that he's making, the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, spoken to Abraham, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. That covenant promise that is made to Abraham is repeated several times because of time. I won't go into all the references, but there is also reference in the Old Testament to the fact that God does not break covenant. So, again, this is one of several references that you could turn to on the subject, but as an example, Psalm 105 and verses 8 to 11, where the psalmist says that God remembers his covenant forever, the word he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. So it could hardly be said stronger in terms of God repeating the covenant and that he remembers his covenant forever. I want you to notice that in the couple of references that I have read, and there will be several others that I could read to you, that the covenant appears to be unconditional, that God says, I will give you the land. There are no ifs and buts about it. Now, what has been pointed out, and what is absolutely true, is that at other times in the Old Testament, you will find that God see, seems to add conditions to the covenant. And there are times when he talks to Israel about the fact that if they are not faithful and obedient, that actually they will be thrown out of the land. And there are a number of verses that say that. So, I mean, I found myself struggling with this. You find that there are promises, covenantal promises, promises that God doesn't break covenant, which are unconditional, and there are at times when God seems to add in conditions to the covenant. And I want to be absolutely fair and honest and admit both those things to be true. My own view, therefore, is that there is something about the land with regard to the Jews that God has promised, but God also issues warnings about Israel's faithfulness and obedience. And I think that in the light of that, biblical history, and indeed history since the Bible, would seem to indicate that God is always seeking to bring Jews back to the land, but actually, because of disobedience, Israel does not hold its land in peace. And that is still the situation today. 
that uh, Jews are in the land, but you talk about them being settled there, but actually they're very unsettled there. And they're surrounded by enemies, and all the time they're under threat, and dangers are around them all the time. It is not a settled position. Now, if I am right on this, would there be a purpose in the Jews returning to the land? Now, again, I've come across suggestions at times that actually no purpose is fulfilled in Jews going back to the land of Israel. I would dispute that. Could you just jump on to the next slide, a moment, please, the next PowerPoint? Um, And uh, I would suggest four things here that ought to be borne in mind. You could say that Jews returning to the land is actually a testimony to the faithfulness of God who keeps covenant. That actually God has, has made covenant and actually Jews have gone back to the land and actually testifies to the fact that God is faithful to the fact that he keeps covenant. That's important because God has made covenant with us with regard to our salvation. And it's important to know that God keeps covenant. Secondly, if God fulfills his promise to Israel with regard to the land, then surely he will fulfill his promises to the church. I think that could also be stated. I think thirdly, you do have to ask, and this was in my introduction, what does the New Testament specifically say about the land? And you do need to ask that question if we're going to explain the old in the light, or explain the old in the light of the new and fuller revelation. Now, the fact is that there is only one oblique reference to the land. I'm not talking about Israel, but to the land in the New Testament that really um, has any significance at all, but it is significant. And it's in Romans 4 and verse 13. And in that verse, Paul says this, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. Note this, that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, that is a very significant verse. You could say, oh, yeah, but surely God didn't promise Abraham the world. He promised him the land of Canaan. But what you've got here is surely an expansion and a fulfillment of what was being promised to Abraham. If I can put it like this, it may be that we should understand that the land of Israel is a physical, earthly sign pointing to a much greater fulfillment. We know from the way that Paul argues in Romans that the true heirs of Abraham are those who have faith. And for those who have faith, it does not imply that we will possess a very narrow strip of land in the Middle East. We are, in de- we are destined to inherit the whole earth. The world is going to be ours through the preaching of the gospel and through the truth going to every nation and to every part of the world. It's as though to Israel, God promised that, and it's a little narrow strip of land in the Middle East, but to the descendants of Abraham who have faith, that's expanded, God promises all this, that we are to inherit the world. And so the promise is tremendously expanded for the church. 
you will therefore understand, I hope, that though I incline to this view that Jews returning to the land is a fulfilment of God's covenant, that I'm not going to spend my ministry getting emotionally ecstatic and worked up about Israel and the land. I believe that it is a covenant thing here, but what I much more passionately am looking to see is that actually God's expanded promise is fulfilled and that the church actually inherits the whole earth. But God's faithfulness to Israel in terms of the land actually points to the bigger and greater fulfilment. And then also I think it could be said that uh, Israel or the Jews' return to the land could be a preparation for a mighty turning of Jewish people to Christ in repentance and faith and acknowledgement that he is Messiah. Could you go back to the previous slide, please? I'm sure you may have to... Can you, oh, great. Thanks so much. And um, go to the fourth view, which is Zionism. Now, I've expressed a personal view. I think there's an end-time purpose uh, for Israel. I believe that's what Romans is saying, Romans 11. Uh, I believe that a return to land is an issue of covenant. But can I say immediately... I am not a Zionist, because to be a Zionist, I think, leaves us, and I mean leaves us, in the Old Testament. And so here's one thing that I want to clear up, because I think that this is so often misquoted and misunderstood. If you go to Exodus chapter 19 and verses 5 to 6, God says to Moses, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And on the basis of that, people say the Jews are God's chosen people. They are his people, his nation. They are the chosen people of God. But you're staying in the Old Testament. You've got to come into the New Testament. And if you go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10, this is what we find that the Apostle says. 1 Peter 2, well-known verses 9 and 10. You, and he's speaking now to the church. There's no question of that. There's no, no way you could possibly understand this without Peter speaking to the church. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And what was first addressed to the Jews in the Old Testament is now actually referred to all the people of God, converted Jew or converted Gentile, but all those who are in Christ. We are now God's holy nation. We are his treasured possession. We are his holy people. And the terms that God used exclusively for Israel has now been actually poured out on the church. It is not true to say that unconverted Jews are the people of God. The people of God, the holy nation, the people who belong to God, the treasured possession are all those in Christ. We are the people of God. Now, what about these Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah chapter 62? Uh, there are Old Testament prophecies and many of them for Israel. You will find with Old Testament prophecies that there are different layers of fulfilment. There's no question 
that when Isaiah prophesied to Israel things like uh, uh, the nations will see your glory, there was, there was something there for the nation of Israel. And indeed, as, as Israel returned from exile, there was some fulfillment of that prophecy. But there is an expansion. And throughout history, there are times when God has brought to light by the Holy Spirit particular prophetic words from the Old Testament that spoke to the people of God then, but are now speaking to the people of God again today. And chapters like Isaiah 62 have been very important for us, like in New Frontiers churches, because we have seen a promise quicken to us that God would have his church shine out with righteousness and that the kings would see our glory. We should no longer be a city deserted with just churches packing up and throwing in the sponge, but that we should see ourselves as the people of God where others are gathering to us and his glory is being shown. So there was some original fulfilment, but actually there's greater fulfilment as you go on through history. You see, everything gets expanded. People of God, the Jews in the Old Testament, people of God, the church in the New Testament. The people of God uh, were a people that God wanted to to bring through as priests, but no, they kept to just a, a kind of group of priests. In the New Testament era, all God's people are priests. It's all expanded. In the Old Testament, it was law that people lived by. What do we live by today? We live by the Holy Spirit who takes us beyond the law. Everything gets expanded as we come into the New Testament era. Can I also say this? I'm very nervous of a bland approval of Israel's present politics. Now, I think sometimes Israel as a state is unfairly attacked in the media. I do think that happens. I think sometimes there's a, there's a, a hatred of the government and the state of Israel by the media. At the same time, her politicians are almost all unregenerate. A number of them are atheists, and Israel has a very bad human rights record. The nation of Israel is not yet saved, so you can't treat it as though it is. And then the last view, dispensational, uh, which is that actually... God is waiting to get back to his real agenda. Uh, This, can I say, buries itself in the Old Testament teaching on Israel and then simply re-emerges at Revelation 20 to suggest that Christ is going to reign for a thousand years and during that reign that every promise ever made to the nation of Israel will be fulfilled literally upon the earth. And then you add to that what's called the pre-tribulation rapture with the church having been removed uh, uh, from the earth and uh, uh, before there's a time of tribulation, all of which I would suggest is totally unbiblical. Jesus did not say, I will build the nation of Israel. He said, I will build my church. And that's his passion And it should be ours. It's wonderfully, surely, and beautifully expressed in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 14 to 18. Because there, uh, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two, that's Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that was between Jew and Gentile, abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, God's purpose was to create in Christ one new man out of the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God 
through the cross by which he came to put death, by which he put to death their hostility. When a Jew gets converted, when a non-Jew gets converted, actually you become one people in Jesus Christ. You are the people of God, part of the nation of God, one new man. Right, I'm finishing with some positive statements. These are just headlines. If we could begin to bring these up, please. We might not all agree on what I'm saying. Some of you might want to push further up the spectrum. Some of you may want to push further down the spectrum. But let me uh, try and just conclude with some positive comments. The first is this. Do not be fatalistic about Israel. I think sometimes there is such reaction to an extreme pro-Israel emphasis that evangelicals can actually back off Israel and talk about taking the gospel to all the people groups of the world but don't want to get involved in Israel. Actually, I think in New Frontiers, we ought to be asking ourselves, what is our responsibility to take the gospel to Jewish people? All Israel will be saved. What are we going to do about that? Secondly, I think we need to be uh, those who are grateful as we recognize that Jesus, our Savior, came from Jewish descent after the flesh. Thirdly, there is a psalm that says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Could I say for your own self-preservation, I think that's very wise, because you feel that actually it is Jerusalem, it is the state of Israel that could still destroy the whole world in terms of war in that part of the world. Iran threatening nuclear weapons that Israel holds. Iran probably getting nuclear weapons. I mean, it is, it is threatening there. I think it would be wise to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I think fourthly, we should defend the Jews' right to live in the land. I'm not talking about defending the state of Israel. I'm talking about defending the Jews' right to live in the land. They were granted the right to live there legally by the United Nations in 1948. They obviously do have an historical claim to the land, and I also believe that there is the issue of God's covenant promise to them. Fifthly, I would say don't defend the state of Israel's politics when they are unjust and oppressive. The Old Testament actually says to the Jews that you are to treat kindly those who are aliens in the land. And that would have reference to Palestinians in the present day and age. I think sixthly, keep an eye on Israel. Because I do think there is something about Jews coming to Christ that is involved in the end time purposes of God. And lastly, I would say, resist the view that God has finished with Israel, but at the same time, Israel must not become the central focus of church life, as some want it to be. I've been to Israel on a couple of occasions. I've met many Jews in Israel, and I've actually lived as a youngster in a very Jewish part of London. I would testify to the statement that is made about Jews if you've got two Jews together, then you can guarantee a split. Right. Jewish people can be cantankerous, hostile, and awkward, and I'm a personal witness to that. If all Israel are going to be saved, if there's going to be a substantial turning of Jews to Christ, I think that's a wonderful demonstration of the grace of God. But guys, let me also say this. We were cantankerous, we were hostile, and we were awkward, but we too received the grace of God. Hallelujah. <laughs> Israel in the church.